Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Tisha Schuler, principal of Adamantine Energy and author of the new book, The Game Changers Playbook. The book is a provocative and insightful look at how oil and gas companies can play a leading role in reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Tisha lays out the case for why these companies need to change, how they can approach the climate challenge in a new way, and what practical steps they can take today to lay the groundwork for future success. Stay with us. All right, Tisha Schuler from Adamantine Energy. Welcome to Resources Radio. It's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Daniel. So Tisha, we're going to talk today about a new book of yours called The Game Changers Playbook. Um, The subtitle uh, of the book is How Oil and Gas Leaders Thrive in an Era of Continuous Disruption. It's a fascinating book. Uh, It's really exciting and provocative to me in a variety of ways, and I'm really psyched to ask you questions about it. But first, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on energy and environmental issues in the first place. So what was your path? I have a very circuitous route, so I'll give you the the Cliff Notes version. When I was at Stanford uh, in the early 90s, I was an environmental activist and protested the wars for oil. So I also studied environmental science and geology. So I thought that that was my path. I moved to Boulder, Colorado. I got a job as an environmental consultant. And then as part of that process of uh, evolving in your career, I found myself working as a consultant for oil and gas companies, doing environmental cleanup, doing environmental training. So it was very much in the sweet spot of environmentalism, but it was for oil and gas companies. And during that period of time, I learned a lot about the industry, met a lot of people, um, but also the fracking wars um, came to be. And as a geologist, and my husband's a hydrogeologist, I thought, this is so interesting that fracking is becoming the point of controversy. There's a lot of things that are worthy of a debate and maybe even conflict, but fracking probably isn't one of them. And so I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to really take this on. I'm going to try to be a translator and help the oil and gas industry. And that through some various twists and turns led to me being the CEO of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, which is a kooky journey in and of itself, because here I am, an environmentalist from Boulder running the trade association that represents <laughs> oil and gas in Colorado. And, and that just happened to be during the five years that the fracking wars were in full steam in Colorado. And I really think really led the country in many ways in that conflict. And so I found myself on the front lines of that and really trying to both um, bring out the best in the oil and gas industry, but also help communicate and build bridges um, about the really important and good works of the industry. And then, so that could, of course, be a whole podcast in itself. We'll just breeze through that. And after I left that, after five years, I started Adam and Teen Energy um, because I really have a keen interest in helping oil and gas companies, helping the industry writ large future-proof against what I see as really changing tides around social expectations of, of energy. And so now I spend all my time working at this interface for companies, but also for um, think tanks and environmental NGOs that work in the space um, on building bridges and crafting the energy future. Yeah, it's so fascinating. You, you've got to be like the only person ever to move to Boulder and realize that you were pro-fracking after moving to Boulder. 
Yeah, I think that is a unique journey. And I will say I don't recommend it for your social life. Yeah, having had a number of conversations about fracking in Boulder and elsewhere along the front range, <laughs> I, uh, I feel yeah. So, um, so one of the really fascinating things about the Game Changers playbook, your new book, is um, it really starts with a bang. So there's an introductory section where uh, at, at one point you state unequivocally that the oil and gas industry has to, and I quote, lead or die. So why did you want to use such stark language at the beginning? Yeah, the interesting thing is my my place in talking to the oil and gas industry really comes from a place of love and a place of um, wanting the best for this industry. So at this moment in time, that means telling people not what they want to hear from me, but what I think it's really important that industry leaders hear. And so um, when I wrote this in the fall, we were uh, looking ahead to the moment that we find ourselves now in in 2021, where the financial system, uh, investors, uh, the political system at a federal level, uh, demographics are all changing in a way that I believe is directional. So a lot of times the industry has thought about its place in society and public opinion as part of the political pendulum. And it's going to swing one way and it's going to swing another way. And you just kind of have to wait out the swings you don't like for it to come back. But I really see these changes as directional and nature and that the industry's positioning around a pendulum or an idea of a return to some past moment is completely flawed and in fact will end in our in our demise. I see the trends underway as completely uh, forming existential threats for the oil and gas industry. So in the absence of a different approach, I do think the industry um, completely loses uh, investor, public, and political support at the at the levels necessary to continue. So the message is stark because the situation, the disruptors are are real. That said, it's paired with the idea that there is a leadership vacuum around energy and there is a massive societal need for energy leadership to address the energy future, decarbonization, creating prosperity around the world. And this creates an unparalleled opportunity for the oil and gas industry to lead. And, and it's really the kind of leadership opportunity that we haven't seen in a generation. And so it's a stark warning paired with an unparalleled opportunity. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, uh, disruptors uh, that are kind of driving these changes. And in the book, you identify kind of three leading ones. Can you give us a quick tour of those three kind of leading disruptors and give us a sense of why they matter? Sure. I, I love talking about this uh, with the caveat that if you work in the oil and gas industry, it is uh, alarming to hear the three disruptors that I'm about to talk about. And so they also are paired with action. But we're right now, we'll just talk about the disruptors. Um, mm -hmm. So the first is demographics. Demographics are changing um, most notably in the rise of the millennial generation. So in raw numbers, millennials now dominate the population and will through at least 2050. And this is a generation that leans left by 30 points. Even where they are conservative, they um, are suspicious 
about oil and gas development, and they are concerned about climate. So conservative millennials are also suspicious of the oil and gas industry and concerned about climate. So what this means is that this generation that's now reaching their peak of economic, civic, and political relevance um, is, is really a public force that we have to reckon with. So now the oil and gas industry's investors, elected officials, permitting authorities are all dominated by the millennial generation. So that's one change that's not going away. And just to put millennials in perspective, we've been talking about them so long that millennials turn 40. The oldest millennials <laughs> turn 40 this year. So we're really That's talking me. about, yeah, 40, the generation. Yeah, I'm, I'm right on the edge. I turned 40 this year. Well, congratulations. You're, you, you are way more important than my generation will ever be. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's that's the first one. The second one is that environmental activism, which historically has been thought about as a, a fringe movement or a, you know the left of the left, is now completely influencing mainstream business risk. So I encourage companies to stop thinking about this in terms of political identity and start thinking about environmental activism as a hurricane off the coast. When you prepare your facilities for an incoming hurricane, you don't ask yourself if you believe it's coming or not. You look at the percentage of risk that it creates. And environmental activism now affects how investors are thinking about oil and gas. So the availability and the cost of borrowing money um, and the expectations that investors are putting on companies. And then it also affects policies. And aspirational policies now drive real expectation for how companies can get their projects permitted. So that's the second risk. And then the third disruptor is racial equity and justice. And when we saw the movements of the summer, I think all of us could tell that this this is a movement that is now enduring and deep and going to change the way our companies and our society functions. So we see expectations around racial equity and justice translating into oil and gas companies through investor expectation and also this new lens uh, of environmental justice on all energy, climate, environmental a legislation, whether it's at the federal level or at state levels. So companies have a real need to look at both their internal diversity, equity, and inclusion work within their companies, but also the way they're thinking about racial equity and justice in the communities within which they operate. Great. That is very well said and um, and, and very persuasively argued, to me at least, in the book. Um, so you said a couple moments ago that you think that the oil and gas industry can lead the way into a clean energy future. So clearly, you know, part of that means doing more in clean energy, starting to invest in clean energy technologies and selling more clean energy products. Um, but, you know, one of the challenges that I've heard speaking with people in the oil and gas industry is that there's not always a recognition that it might also mean selling less oil and gas. So in your view, uh, does the future mean a combination of more clean energy and less oil and gas, or is it uh, something else? It's a wonderful question, and it's really easy for, I think, the industry and climate hawks to think about the energy future in this paradigm of a zero-sum gain. For any advancement of clean energy, there's a loss uh, for oil and gas. But I really think of this differently. With the engagement of the oil and gas industry, you now have um, billions of dollars millions of miles of pipeline and other types of infrastructure around just the US alone, for example, never mind the world. And then some of the brightest scientific and engineering minds all working 
on the climate challenge and the decarbonization opportunities. So one just big paradigm shift is thinking about putting the massive R&D resources and existing infrastructure of the oil and gas industry to work for um, decarbonization. So that's a huge opportunity and just a big paradigm shift. And you can imagine just the opportunities that creates for employees, for companies to think differently. Then on the question of what, what is an individual company doing differently, that even though we may hit peak oil, peak petroleum product demands in um, developed economies in the next you know, one to 10 years, there's still quite a long runway of when we're going to need these products and need to be thinking about them in a decarbonizing framework. So the way we think of it instead is what's the toolbox each company is going to have to take whatever business they're doing today and produce those energy services or similar energy services, but increasingly decarbonizing the ultimate content. So some of that might be through um, various kinds of blending. Some of it might be through offsets. Some of it might be from new businesses. So I don't think of it as there's one thing and one has to go away and another has to come in. Instead, this is more about a system that needs to adjust over the course of decades with urgency um, and is, is shifting in small ways customized to each company. So an international oil and gas major, we're following you know, with interest how they are repositioning as energy companies of the future. And they can afford to invest in offshore wind, for example. But a small midstream oil transport company, and midstream meaning a pipeline company, will need to be thinking about things like how do they dramatically reduce their emissions over time? How much will they take responsibility for the oil flowing through their pipelines? Will there be a blending? Will they be concerned about the carbon content? And ultimately, will they be uh, transitioning to transporting zero carbon fuels like hydrogen? So these are the kind of ways that we're encouraging the companies to think about this as opportunity and not as loss. Right. That makes sense. So you, you've already laid out a couple of you know potential examples. Can you say a little bit more about some of the practical steps that oil and gas companies will need to start making today uh, to start laying the groundwork for, for that transition. Yeah, and it's interesting because when you say practical, I at least want to think small, but I do think we have to think practical and visionary at the same time. What's mm -hmm. visionary and what steps will we take today? So I'd like to think of it in three big buckets of game changers. And the first one is putting the millennials at the center of company strategic planning. And this is really revolutionary because oil and gas companies are uh, traditionally quite hierarchical in nature. And even though millennials are in their 30s um, and turning 40, you know, you're somewhere in low to mid-level management. So this idea of thinking differently about letting the secret weapon within companies of millennials be at the planning table to shift, to just break the paradigms of how we're thinking about the energy future, I think is really important. It's also mission critical that immediately we build bridges to a millennial public. So we are able to think and communicate and engage in a completely different way. So putting millennials at the center of corporate strategy, I think is really important. The, the second, and it, it's related, is that companies need to immediately share aspirations with the public for a decarbonizing energy future. And at this point, I can say with confidence that this is just non-negotiable. Uh, I spent a lot of 2020 arguing about whether this was a good idea or not. And I'm more convinced today than ever that if companies can't speak about climate 
fluently and about their role in addressing climate, and then go even one step farther to say we share the aspirations of the public for a decarbonizing energy future, then you have space to talk and negotiate and think about what those steps mean in the interim. So sharing aspirations with the public is really important. And that has to happen at the board and executive level. And of course, you can imagine I'm advocating that there's millennials being brought into those conversations. And then mm -hmm. the third shift is that companies need to really think about their civic leadership responsibility. Um, in the US, for example, um, we expect oil and gas companies, if there's a natural disaster, to just step up in this massive way and repair power lines and make sure that fuel gets to where it needs to be. And um, companies do that very naturally. Well, here we find ourselves in 2021 in, a, in an economic crisis, a health crisis, and with climate as an overwhelming shared public priority. So this is when companies need to stand up and say, this is how we're going to lead in a civic way. And we're going to address all these elements as part of the broader community. So we really want to see companies stepping into their leadership role. And of course, this fits into that third disruptor of racial equity and justice. So how companies are internalizing their diversity, equity, and inclusion work and translating the civic leadership into addressing racial equity and justice. That is all super interesting and, and makes sense. One of the items that you touched on a couple moments ago was the diversity within the oil and gas industry. So, you know, we have super majors, we have mid-sized companies, we have small mom and pop operations and everything in between. When you look at the wide range of views within the industry, you know, it, it, today what we see is that some companies are articulating those aspirational goals uh, shared with society on decarbonization, and others are either saying nothing or, you know, perhaps perhaps working to thwart uh, certain climate policies. So to what extent do you think the smaller players in the industry or those who are not kind of naturally inclined to, to move ahead uh, with some of the strategies you're talking about, how amenable do you think they might be to these changes? It's such an important question because outside of the industry, it's easy to talk about oil and gas as if it's one monolithic industry. But in fact, there's thousands of companies um, and millions of people just in the U.S. alone. So the way that I am approaching this is that the number one imperative for companies that aren't on this decarbonization train yet, that the... the First thing that, that company leadership has to do is take this entire conversation out of politics and into business risk. And that's a really important transformation because uh, individuals' personal politics are so tied up with identity and now so interwoven with questions of um, everything from climate to racial equity and justice. And these are just unproductive framings. And they, they lend themselves to this old way of thinking of trying to wait until the pendulum swings back or there's a, um, a past that we're going to return to when people appreciated the important work we do. So even for small companies, and Adam and Teen does um, occasionally get to advise smaller companies in this space, we really want to reframe this as business risk and thinking about how companies need to prepare for a decarbonizing energy future. And really what we found is even the smallest companies can do this. This is a lot about just reframing how you're thinking about the present and the future and whether you're in a defensive, reactive posture 
or a proactive innovation posture. And the the most important uh, resource that we as an industry bring to this is 150 years of entrepreneurial spirit. And there's this, just like you have out West here in Colorado, you have this idea that like, we're Westerners, we innovate, you can drop us anywhere and we'll figure out how to be successful. Um, the oil and gas industry has that with our entrepreneurial spirit. We have reinvented ourselves time and time and time again, and really transformed geopolitics with our success here in the US. So that entrepreneurial spirit is what we want to tap into after we've transcended politics to think about how are we going to invent the next 50 years of the energy future. And it's going to look nothing like the past 50, but that's okay. That's what we've always done. And this is the opportunity for our generation to create the energy future. So that transcends um, size and it transcends politics. And that's the way I would encourage industry leaders to be thinking about this. Yeah, that's so interesting. And um kind of reminds me of the comment you made earlier about the hurricane offshore. It doesn't matter whether you know you believe in the forecasting models or whatever. The reality is that the hurricane is offshore and that and and there's a real risk there that you need to take into account. Yeah, and the piece that people outside of the industry can participate in is that vilifying the oil and gas industry and even vilifying fossil fuels is actually cutting off a huge resource to address climate faster better, cheaper. And so that hurricane off the coast could actually apply to anyone in this debate. Like, let's let's transcend these political ideas of a villain and instead create a new paradigm where we're working towards the shared future. I do think the burden is on the oil and gas industry to show up in this conversation differently. But I also implore participants from other parts of the environmental climate conversation to be ready to allow a seat at the table. So as companies show up, they can participate in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. So let's turn to a slightly different subject now, um, one that I know both of us uh, care a lot about. So, you know, we've both traveled in oil and gas producing regions. We've both, you know, met a lot of people who work in the industry. Uh, I know I've certainly gained an understanding for how companies, you know, really care about their employees and the places where they operate. And what I've been thinking about is, you know, what types of strategies companies can make today so that their workers and the communities where they operate can succeed uh, in a very different energy future. So what types of actions uh, are you kind of advising companies on how they can position their workforce uh, to succeed in a clean energy future? It's such an important question, and it's it, it's really conducive to this new framing, which is um, not to fight for a place as a fuel of the past, because you, you can't simultaneously create and invent an, the new energy future while you're you're fighting for your right to do things the way you've always done. So part of this shift is actually really conducive to workforce development. One, bringing in the younger generation that will be leading our oil and gas companies in the next 10 to 30 years, bringing them into these conversations, and then focusing on the decarbonization toolbox. So we, we want to see employees involved in R&D projects that are happening at field scale, so people are getting exposed to those kind of actions. We want people to be a part of the uh, brainstorming 
process around what the decarbonization toolbox is so that they can be following the developments as they go on. And then all the workforce of the future elements that would have been there anyway for the oil and gas industry, digitization, automation, uh, these are things that were coming anyway and we could see in the industry. So having the skill set to work remotely on field work, for example, there's a there's just some amazing developments that really impact efficiency, safety, environmental performance. And so really bringing the workforce along and particularly our workforce that's going to be in the industry for 10 to 30 years into the early planning stages as we're developing our innovative projects. Mm -hmm. And on a related note, you know, one of the challenges that uh, oil and gas producing regions might face are related to um, just community economic development and public service delivery. You know, we've been talking mostly about uh, private actions and, and private governance and what companies can do. Uh, but are there any strategies that you've come across uh, or uh, that you've seen as, uh, you know, best practices for energy producing communities, let's say, you know, places like West Texas or Central California or the Piance Basin in Western Colorado. Uh, are there strategies that that you've seen that those community leaders might be able to take to, again, position themselves to succeed in a clean energy future? Absolutely. So there's a combination of academics, and, and most of these regions have a university and a, a science and engineering-based university. So having that, um, those academics involved in the innovation research and uh, pilot projects around new products is going to be really important. So pairing with those in places like Weld County, where for the last decade they've been diversifying into energy centers rather than oil and gas centers. These are really important framing conversations. Again, to take this out of a sort of defensive, reactive politics, um, you know, we're a conservative region and we do oil and gas. No, it doesn't matter. We're, a, we're an innovative region creating the energy of the future. One of the most exciting innovations underway right now is um, the Avatar project. So this is happening in Alberta, which much like Texas is the oil and gas producing region of Canada. And they're under the same kind of environmental pressures, um, except even more acute because they don't have pipeline access to sell their oil into the US, so their prices are even more depressed. And they have this amazing program that brings together community leaders, company leaders, venture capital fund, and the local university, all to work on um, startups startups that are focused completely on decarbonizing the oil and gas industry. And that's just such a an amazing example of the kind of innovation and collaboration that keeps millennials engaged, that attracts in diverse interests and perspective, and that is genuinely leading into the energy future in real time. That's so interesting. I hadn't heard about that. Are, you, are there any equivalent uh, activities taking place in the U.S. that you're aware of for any oil and gas producing U.S. regions? Not at that level, but I did interview the yeah. founders on my podcast with the express interest in bringing something like that program to the U.S. I share your enthusiasm that that's the kind of thinking and action that is going to be transformative at scale. And the really neat thing about what they're doing is this isn't dabbling on the margins. Oh, you have a million bucks. Now you got to go try to raise your five million bucks. Once companies get to that point, they pair up with an existing 
energy company who has the scale, who has the resources to take these into the field uh, immediately. So it's just so much more scalable when you bring that kind of uh, financial power into the innovation process. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'll look forward to learning more about that. Well, um, Tisha Schuler from Adamantine Energy, this has been so interesting. And um, I would really encourage folks to check out uh, your new book, The Game Changers Playbook. And we're going to close it out now with the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, asking you to recommend something that's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack that you've read or watched or heard lately that you think our listeners might enjoy. And I'll start uh, with a, a, a book that I paired along <laughs> with your book. And Tisha, I told you about mm -hmm. this. Uh, as I was reading uh, the Game Changers Playbook, I was also reading... Uh, Naomi Klein's most recent book, which is called On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. It was very different uh, from, from your book, Tisha, and it um, sort of approached the question of decarbonization from an entirely different angle. But one of the you know, things I appreciated about it is that um, you know, it articulates a really compelling argument that a lot of people belief. Uh, whether or not I agree with uh, every detail doesn't matter. But um, having a good sense of where advocates are coming from, from multiple perspectives, I always find to be useful, even if I don't agree with all of it. So um, so that was my, my pairing of this book, definitely balancing out the ledgers. I, I love that because um, it's so important. Everything I am espousing for the oil and gas industry is to really become skillful in understanding the anti-fossil fuel perspective. So because how can we engage meaningfully if we don't understand? So that so I love it that you found common ground between our two pieces of work. Yeah. So uh, can you, Tisha, now maybe recommend something else for our audience? Absolutely. So if if your readers are not familiar with the Breakthrough Institute, I um, love the pieces that they're putting out right now, really thinking pragmatically and optimistically about addressing climate at scale. So um, after the pandemic is a recent um uh, article that was put out um, by Ted Nordhaus and Alex Trimbath, and you can find that on their website. And then anything that Zeke um, Housefather writes is so um, encouraging. Um, and so he has CO2 emissions um, from fossil fuels may have peaked in 2019, and I find that really interesting. And then my most of my environmental and science reading right now has pivoted to working on my own journey around racial equity and justice. So I'm just about to finish How to Be an Anti-Racist. And I think that this is work that every leader uh, is responsible for progressing in their own internal world as well as our external efforts. Very cool. Great recommendations. And we've actually had Zeke on the show uh, to talk about climate. And we had Ted Nordhaus on the show just a couple awesome. weeks ago. So we've got breakthrough covered as well. Well, um, Tisha Schuler again from Adamantine Energy, thank you so much for coming on the show today, telling us about your new book. It's been fascinating. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much for the really important work you do through this podcast and all your writing and research at RFF. Thanks, Tisha. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org slash support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., 
Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.